Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2017. I am writer, hyphen, Bowling Green Massacre survivor, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, writer, hyphen, Swedish disaster survivor. <laughs> uh, the two I think we should take strategies. a moment of silence. We, we could. I'll probably have to edit it out, though, for time. Um, so done. just imagine yeah. we just did. So we're actually beginning our reviews uh, this month with Billy Ling's Long Halftime Walk, not to be confused with Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Shuffle, which I believe is the Japanese title for Chicago. Um, this is the <laughs> new film from Ang Lee, which came out in Australia last year, but we held off reviewing it because it just hit UK cinemas this month, and we wanted to wait for Sophie to catch it. So, Sophie, did you enjoy the film? I really enjoyed my attempt to book tickets for it which went like this oh it's not on anymore what mm. so i re i enjoyed using several different ticket booking sites and evaluating their total user unfriendliness and also contemplating like how the mighty have fallen angley reliable you know, global art house director, considered even, you know, honorary Brit for making the wonderful Sense and Sensibility mm -hmm. here, who has disappeared. Is this the curse of Breakback Mountain um, and the Scientologists fighting back against its Oscar nominations? I don't know. But the film, which I think is a very, sounded like to me, a very deeply American film. It's set during a football game. It's about US veterans just didn't have the purchase here and particularly being released the weekend of the BAFTAs. It somewhat disappeared under the absolute deluge of Oscar films that is being released here right now. So a lot of competition for cinema spaces and it was up against the weekend when Moonlight and Hidden Figures and Fences were all released. So I have fucked up. <laughs> no, but what did you think of the film? And you know, bar boredom, comma porn, I am a massive Ang Lee fan. So mm. I'm sorry, which is what I call Lost Comma Caution. <laughs> I'm. I wanted to see it. Look, it's it's such a fascinating film. I, I I mean this in a good way. It feels like Donald Kaufman wrote it. It was. Um, <laughs> And I, that is a compliment in this case, in this specific case, because <laughs> it, I, I actually did not like this film for the, about the first hour. And then in the second half, mm. I realised that there was this hyper self-aware thing going on that, you know, you have to dig before this really gaudy and earnest surface to get to the film that Ang Lee's really making, which is hidden beneath all of this superficiality. So the soldiers spend all of their time in the film concerned with how the movie deal of their lives is being sold. And we're watching the movie. As we're watching the movie, we hear those concerns echoed. Uh, the audience wants to see you go off into the sunset with the girl, uh, says Chris Tucker's largely superfluous producer character, as our lead undergoes an hours-long romance that is as superfluous and tacked on as the very thing he is complaining about within the film. Uh, and so it's like we're watching the hack version of their story that they were worried about. Uh, America is presented as this overproduced and ugly beast, and we see that from their point of view. But the film is so overproduced and ugly itself that it's difficult to watch, but it's really admirable. And I think I think there's something really amazing going on. I think Ang Lee has snuck one of the most searing critiques of American culture into a film that looks like this rah-rah, streamers-waving propaganda. Huh. So it's a bit like the Hulk Inside Out, which was supposed to be a superhero film and was like Dostoevsky in meditation on masculinity and 
slowness. Mm. This is a searing critique that is dressed up as a, you know, MTV special. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, from one hyper-mediated story of masculinity <laughs> to another. Yes, T2 train spotting the nominatively bizarre sequel. Also, because I went to see this James Cameron film about a robot. I don't know if that's what. Was that what I was supposed to see? Yeah, and well, I went to a tea store to buy some tea. There's a chain in Australia called T2, and, and that's what I went along <laughs> to. And uh, I'm sorry you had to explain that joke for me. <laughs> uh, they're, they're not a sponsor, so I had to, uh, had to spell <laughs> Um Just imagine me doing a Kermit meme as you say that. Sure. Well, it's a very, very difficult thing to do, a sequel to an iconic film, I think, it's easier to do a sequel to a film that is fondly remembered, but one that is so iconic, where every image and sound has seeped into pop culture. I, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I, and I will say for the most part, I do think this film is a success. But even in its success, it highlights how difficult what it's doing is. So it, it's I think it's perfectly balanced between creating something new and feeding off the nostalgia of that first film. But whenever it makes one of those clever choices, it's so self-conscious that you don't get sucked in. You're sort of stepping back going, oh, that was a clever choice. And it sort of proves that sequels to iconic films are almost, you know, can't exist on their own terms. And I think that the only path it had was to make a film about living in the past. So these characters are all trying to live in the past, and it's all about the fact that they can't live in the past. And it's a clever angle, but there's something jarring about the fact that the sequel's approach to this theme, I don't know, it doesn't feel commensurate with the original film's approach to themes. Uh, and so as a sequel, it ends up feeling more like a world in which the first film existed. Like, Hyphenate's alum, Kriv Stenders, made a sequel to his own film, uh, last year called Red Dog True Blue, which begins with the characters watching the first Red Dog film. Human Centipede 2 features characters who are aware of the first Human Centipede film. And <laughs> T2 feels like it makes so much more sense if you imagine this being a world in which the first train spotting film exists rather than this is something that happened to these characters. I am going to... Have a lie down after that I'm, speech. I'm just dying over the human caterpillar 2 comparison because <laughs> I think it's really, really accurate. Like, I saw a great film this weekend mm -hmm. about masculinity and addiction and returning to your past and redemption and the possibility of tenderness between men but it was called moonlight right this whole thing about this film being iconic like the only time i have ever missed a flight it was i was coming back from staying with a friend in dublin who ironically used to teach celtic cinema and in fact taught train spotting on her course got stuck in on the airport bus in unbelievable traffic had no idea what was going on and then eventually this massive group of women got on the airport bus and from their pink cowboy hats and merchandise it became clear they were all going to the take that reunion show <laughs> that was at a stadium midway to the airport and i ended up missing my flight which is not why i dislike take that okay i just when people say train spotting is iconic i just think i lived through a different 90s than you like my iconic 90s films are my own private idaho mm -hmm. and the watermelon woman and orlando and rack hatcher and i saw train spotting and i saw shallow and I was like, eh. okay. 
you know, to me, Trainspotting is much more iconic as a stage play. So for me, that it wasn't so much this nostalgia and this question of what are they going to do something so iconic. It was in a way about having tracing the career of Danny Boyle from being, you know, this young Turk or this young punk or whatever you want to say, who came out in the 1990s. And we talked about there was that great interview in Bomb that compared him and Antonia Bird. And, you know, it brought up some of that for me that he's just carried on making these industry film after industry film after crowd pleaser. And I was like, so how is he going to go back to the kind of punk attitude of train spotting or is he going to make a crowd pleaser and the fact that it was basically the film equivalent of dad board you know <laughs> it even starts in a gym the funniest joke in the film is that begbie can't get an erection mm. um anymore after years in prison and that is like literally the funniest thing um the fact that the film thinks that men who might like to have anal sex is hilarious just obviously left me completely stone-faced from the first along with the two-dimensional female characters and the complete lack of plot or character motivation. I thought Ewan Bremner's performance was extraordinary and I would have watched a film just about that character. Spud, who has the only sort of really redemptive arc, Mm. um, he was the addict whose life was most destroyed in the first film and in the second film. He's gone back into addiction, he works to recover and then there's a sort of metatextual joke in which he becomes the author of Trainspotting but the whole point of this is just to like get women to be with him. Like first the beautiful, mysterious, sexual, Bulgarian sex worker Victoria, and then his wife, played by a, a criminally underused um, Shirley Henderson, who should really have been the star of the film. <laughs> and I also like there's one scene where I feel Danny Boyle really tells us how he makes films and why. So I don't know if you want to guess which scene I, you, you uh, think that I think this is. I, I no, I, I'm not even sure where to begin. Which which scene? So there's a joke early on in the film. Simon, aka Sick Boy, and Mark, aka Renton, need to get a bunch of money. So they decide that they're going to this racist Protestant nightclub, which is as horrific as it sounds, to steal everyone's credit cards while they're gleefully singing racist anti-Catholic songs that are actually banned in Scotland. And this is all supposed to feel terribly daring but self-aware. But they sort of get stopped by the bouncer and they have to sing a song. You think they're going to be caught for stealing the cards. And they go up on stage and Mark says to Simon, and I'm calling them their adult names because they're, you know, middle-aged guys in the film, Mm -hmm. just play those two chords. And so Simon plays F and G on the piano and Mark sings a song which has the chorus, there's no more Catholics left. And it's sort of like the equivalent of the throw the Jew down a well scene in Borat, you know, Mm. but there it is, Danny Boyle telling us, how do you please a crowd who you consider idiots? You play the same two chords over and over again and shout something pleasing, like lager lager or throw the Catholics down the well or whatever it was. And I just, I felt really offended by that. Like, by them singing that or that they were no no by by the film is telling me like oh i you know how do you keep an idiot happy well you just do what you did before and repeat it until everyone shouts really loudly in unison right and i think you know there is a kind of populist element to danny boyle's filmmaking and it's been amped by his like 2012 olympics celebrations and 
I don't, I don't think that he's intending for you to read it like that, but I just came out thinking, you, you smug git, you've just given your secret away. <laughs> and, you know, in his defence, he has just said he's going to fund a, an international film school in Manchester for people from economically deprived backgrounds. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to bandage the puppy, but... Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I like that reading on it. I mean, I did, I was actually quite critical of it, but I do really like this film. Another film out this month uh, that hit all my feel-good G-spots. It's a a true-life story about overcoming oppression, and it's about the space program. It's like they looked at my dream journal. Uh, Hidden Figures. So it's the the American pilot, John Glenn, who became the first person to go into um, Earth orbit, to break out of the atmosphere and circle the Earth. And this turns out to be super mathematically complicated, uh, even though Jim Parsons playing the supervisor of the room that's working out basically explains it with hand gestures. Um, <laughs> it's only Tara G.P. Henson's genius mathematician, Catherine Goebel, who later becomes Catherine Johnson when she manages to get Maheshaha Ali as well as a job in the space program, <laughs> thus ticking all of my boxes, that she can identify the mathematical issues with this and this is for me like i have this new film genre that i'm really passionate about which is called women getting shit done women who have their shit together even when they're facing sexism racism being widowed being spat at having to steal library books having to run a mile Mm. just to pee which is literally what these women had to do because there were segregated bathrooms in virginia which is where nasa was and they just get on with shit and they look fly while they're doing it and the screenplay by Alison Schroeder and Theodore Melfi from Margot Lee Shetley's book and the Shetley's own family worked at NASA is just it's sharp it's funny um the whole cinema was giving big laughs big love to all the lines and I think it's just going to become one of those films but we used to say that people would watch on a Sunday afternoon but now I think you say it will meme Mm. there were just a ton of quotable lines like they didn't hire us for it because we wear skirts they hire us because we wear glasses (laughs) obviously one that i am using every day (laughs) from now on and i think we've known about octavia spencer for a while we've known that janelle monet is a huge music star and now you know she's turned in two great performances in this and in moonlight but this is tara gp henson's breakout role for, mm. i mean she's amazing in empire but this she should be a list for everything it is just she commands the screen and she gets to do stuff that women on screen white black asian never get to do she gets to be smart she gets to be sexy on her own terms she gets the guy um not in a sort of billy lynn's halftime walkway it's really goofy and sweet she's a parent she's a single mom and she just loves her work mm. you know Absolutely. And I, I, you know, it's hard to imagine her not being a massive star after this film because she is so, so watchable. You know, your eyes go to her even in crowd scenes. And I don't know, look, I, I, I really, really like this film. I think the thing that stopped me loving it completely is the thing that made it a success or that it had to do in that I felt like the lines were too clean. The the racism was too sanitized. The colors are too bright. But I think that's necessary because, you know, it needs to be geared towards a younger audience. You need that element of, of watchability uh, and rewatchability to get these stories into the public consciousness, which is, you know, one of the most important reasons for this film existing. 
but I still felt like I, w- I was sort of watching the, I don't know, the sanitized version of this story. You know, that's the, that's the only thing that sort of stopped me from loving it completely. I really, really liked the film and would definitely watch it again. I guess the problem is that there just isn't a body of films telling these kind of stories. Like, mm. if you want to look at, you know, the settler con- conquest of the West, say, you know, you've got a whole body of Westerns which tell the stories in a range of ways from goofy to horror to mannerist to classical and you can line them up against each other but when it comes to the story of like middle class black female scientists in the 1950s Mm, mm. there's there's not a lot of terms of comparison so just placing those bodies those characters like the scene where dorothy vaughan played by octavia spencer in totally get shit done form she leads all the women that she's been supervising from west computing which was where all the black women worked to the room where the first ibm computer 790 has been set up which has been staffed by these totally hopeless white guys who don't know how to do anything and you just watch them walking down the corridor in their skirt suits in their twin set and pearls in their heels all of them with their their hair styled differently in blowouts in braids i've never seen that scene in a film before yeah they're not they're not a girl gang they're not high school girls they're not even beyonce's dancers and you know i'm super critical of capitalism and the glass ceiling (laughs) and ceiling and women in the workplace but the idea that these brilliant minds had found a place Mm. and there they were all together and they were gonna go and like invent fucking computing like i will allow a lot of kevin costner hitting a toilet sign with a crowbar to have that moment yeah. and quite the biggest problem with the film is the white actors who know they're in roles which don't need to be there and which are underwritten although not as underwritten as the roles for actors of colors often are and they're all kind of like apologetically stuck in them trying to do their best with them when they don't need to be there at all you, you don't think the white actors should have been there or the other white characters? I just, I think they could have, you know, Kevin Costner's, who plays the, the guy who runs um, the room that's doing the trajectory calculations, he's, you know, based on a real historical character, but his role is, is from the book, I Wasn't There, was much mm. less dramatic. He certainly was not the person who dismantled the segregated bathrooms at NASA. And I feel like they want there to be a bit of a love story between him and Tara G.P. Henson. He spends a lot of time staring at her really lovingly that could really have been spent on me having an opportunity to evaluate Tara G.'s outfit, glasses and math. Right. So I wanted the film to trust me to be able to look at her without having a white man tell me how to look at her. Fair enough. Also, man, was John Glenn woke? Yeah, John Glenn was woke. Mega woke. Yeah. And about that, that is true from what I get from the Margot Shetley book. Like, I think he was from the North and uh, these the Flyboys, they just wanted to get shit right, you know, mm. and they'd fought in mixed units during the war. And so they brought these very new attitudes to what was the most racist state in the Union. And the film makes this point. Virginia was the last state to integrate its schools. So at one and the same time, you have all these people pushing forward to get into space and black children can't even get into school. Mm. I think the film could have done more to bring out those ironies, but they are definitely, definitely there. But yeah, I would say read the book as well as see the film because together they are the complete package.
In the midst of the greatest turmoil I think the United States has seen within my lifetime, actors have been taking to the stage to bypass the thanking of their agents and the acknowledgement of deities to make political statements. This is, of course, nothing new, but the passion and fervour that was only a decade ago the domain of the Michael Moores and Sean Penns of the world is now de rigueur with Meryl Streep at the Golden Globes and David Harbour at the Screen Actors Guild giving rousing viral-ready screeds against the Trump administration and its joke of an immigration policy. With the foundations of civil society seeming to crumble so quickly before us, should we be doing away with lavish red carpet events in which the overpaid and overexposed are given golden statues or should these events be used as a platform to shine a light on the important issues? Joining us to discuss this topic is our guest, Toronto-based film critic and author, Tina Hassania. Tina, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very happy to be here. It's our pleasure. Hi, Tina. <laughs> Hi, Sophie. <laughs> so now that Lee has summed up all the possible positions we could take on this. <laughs> <laughs> it saves time. I should say that, you know, last month's Hyphenet obviously um, did us a good deal. Ken Loach, um, who was the subject of last month's podcast, had a flaming oration at the BAFTA Awards here in Little England, as we now call it, about the government's mistreatment of refugees and all other categories of human being. But obviously, you know, Ken Loach is someone who has been doing this his entire life. It didn't really come as a surprise. I think, you know, what you're saying is that it's become more surprising that people who previously would and touch politics with a barge pole are suddenly looking at this maybe as a career opportunity? Well, I don't think it's necessarily that cynical, but there's an obligation now that if you don't say anything, that's a bit weird, a bit uh, inappropriate. Yeah, but like, this, this is my question is, I mean, I, I didn't watch the SAG Awards, but I know that there were lots and lots and lots of political speeches, and it seemed like everyone had at least one quip included in what they were saying, at the very least. Um, with the exception of like maybe one or two people. And maybe that's what you're referring to when you say like, it's kind of weird if someone doesn't say anything. But like, I mean, the Oscars are already really long. So if everyone is trying to <laughs> fit in something, and if overwhelmingly the message is the same, I'm, I'm just because people turn into the Oscars for entertainment. And and though I, I look at them as a place where political statements are definitely made, like it's it's a cultural event, the entertainment value of actually watching the Oscars cannot be undermined from that. So I'm really curious to see how, especially performers who might not necessarily have ever like expressed their political views are going to be playing with that. Do you know what I mean? Like outside of the obvious jokes that some of them are going to write for themselves. Um, we should point out that at the time of recording, we're actually a week away from the Oscar ceremony, but when this episode is released, it will have just happened about 15 hours earlier, so we have no insight into what happened when, you know, Tony Erdman won Best Foreign Film, or the inspiring speech Viola Davis gave, because these things haven't happened yet, and I really hope I get those two right. <laughs> I just think that the, the actors need to take a leaf out of some British pop stars books, so... In the UK, our music ceremonies, the equivalent of the Grammys, is called the Brits. And for a period in the 1990s, they were complete anarchy. So these are the awards famously where Prince turned up with the slave painted on his face, where Jarvis Cocker 
bared his rear end to the camera where I think it was the fine young cannibals were sort of being given an award by video link by Mrs Thatcher and they refused it and threw it down and walked off stage so they were very unprofessional in their hosting and it was just complete drunken chaos so what I would like to see at the Oscars is a lot of people ripping open their tuxedos to show that they're wearing slogan t-shirts that say you know the future is feminist people donning hijabs in the audience in solidarity with the filmmakers and film personnel who can't be there banners sort of Latigra style outfits that say impeach Trump as you say Tina that we want 60 second speeches so they have to imaginatively use all those other visual qualities and moments people holding up signs on the red carpet we've had some experience of that with raising films it went pretty well it is a huge platform and I think I'm just ready for it to be used a bit more imaginatively not Sasha Baron Cohen in a g-string right (laughs) right right that's a really great point and I think that there's nothing more powerful than images you know I I think what you were saying and you know like people wearing hijabs that's a great idea that's an amazing idea that really like sticks in your brain long after Meryl Streep's speech would right? In my opinion. It's more powerful in a way. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it was when the Cove won, yeah, like best documentary, and Mm. someone held up a sign that said text dolphin, and then there was like a little code, and you could find Mm -hmm. out more information on how to help the cause. So signs would be great as well. So so, none of of us think that the awards themselves should be cancelled because there was talk of that for a while and for a brief second I actually thought yeah why you know why would you throw a thing like this until it occurred to me that nothing would make the Trumps of the world happier than the Oscars getting cancelled and all the you know failed overrated sad actors who you know voted for Hillary not having a platform to talk about him that was a great Alec Baldwin impression by the way (laughs) (laughs) it's three levels deep yeah yeah. I just think it would be like the the whole claim before the Brexit vote here when the the Brexit people were like oh we'll take this 350 million euros that is given every week to Europe and give it to the NHS like the academy isn't going to turn around and be like oh here's the 20 million dollars I don't even know it's probably like 100 million dollars isn't it that we spend on the ceremony mm. and all of the goodie bags and the dresses and everything and we're going to give it to a charity for refugees you know they would just spend it on some other kind of party so mm. let's let's have the oscars and let's you know but i want actors to get up there and and do the the real thing that meryl streep did which was where she mentioned an organization like you said tina about the charity behind the cove like she mentioned the press freedom association and sixty thousand dollars was given to that association that night I think that's a pathetic sum of money given the total wealth of all those people in that room. But if every actor just stood up and said, I'm supporting the ACLU, I'm supporting the Southern Poverty Law Centre, I'm supporting Mm -hmm. women for women from Afghanistan, whatever, and you were like, Mm -hmm. okay, so I have this list of places to send all my ill-gotten gains that I don't pay taxes on, that would be amazing. I I completely agree because the, the thing is that celebrities hold so much power when they actually speak up about something, you know, like they have more ability, really. I mean, look at Donald Trump, right? Like, quite frankly, can we not um... just for ten seconds look at Donald Trump? <laughs> 
Um, but in terms of celebrity image, it brings people and money like out like nothing else. So yeah. I agree. And and it shouldn't come down to if uh, Asghar Farhadi had attended, you know, it shouldn't come down to people like that delivering those kinds of speeches. I know earlier I said not everyone can give a political speech, but I, I do think that there is a way to be able to express some kind of opinion, spread some kind of word and do it in your 60 seconds or whatever in a way that's meaningful and powerful. And it's really up to the individual to figure that out. So filmmakers and actors listening to this, uh, please make sure you highlight organizations and causes uh, 24 hours earlier. If you could do that in retrospect, <laughs> if you're listening to this. Just jump the, in your time yeah, machine. <laughs> exactly. Go back to the Oscar. So, Tina, please tell us which filmmaker you will be talking to us about. So, Asghar Farhadi, who is, I guess, the most famous at this point Iranian filmmaker in the world, is who I'm here to talk about today. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, now you've, uh, you've, you've literally written the book about him. Yeah, and it's the first English language book on uh, Mr. Farhadi in Iran. There's been at least one book written on him. And I think it, it came out just after mine or just before mine. And so when I started writing this, which was in 2014, he'd made six films. So it was easy to sort of go back and be like, all right, here is like a solid look at a filmmaker with a solid body of work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I think some people at the time were sort of like, what are you going to write about? He, you know, like he's made a separation. And then and I'm like, oh, and he's actually made like a ton of other movies that no one has heard of because they're, you know, theatrical uh, or home video release uh, in most parts of the world hadn't really happened yet. So, but that's, has now started to change quite a fair bit, which is great. And I, I like to think that my book played a small role in that, possibly. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Mr. Mr. Fahardi, he, um, the thing about him is that he is a filmmaker who is in my opinion, more of a writer than a director, or at least the writing aspect of his filmmaking is um, is there before the directing part. And I and I don't mean to denigrate his abilities as a director at all. In, in fact, I really love the way that he uh, directs his films. And of course, directing for movies the way that he does requires uh, a certain aptitude that he has in spades. However, I think the thing that most people latch onto most obviously or, or directly, or at least when they first watch one of his movies, is the aesthetic considerations that he gives to the screenplay. Uh, and, I, and I think that this is what sets him, him apart from many of his worldwide contemporaries, but also um, his Iranian contemporaries. And, I, and one of the reasons why I really like his work is that it is so very different from some of the other well-known Iranian directors of the past 20 years. I don't want to say he's like the direct opposite of someone like Abbas Kiarostami, but Kiarostami's films, though they have narratives, they're very uh, digressive and, you know, they kind of go all over the place and they're delightful on their own and, and they're amazing in their own ways. But I feel like Farhadi brought a certain rigor to uh, storytelling um, and complexity that hadn't really been there before. But again, I don't, I don't want to limit that to just Iranian cinema because I, I actually think that's true of just 
world cinema in general. Mm. I think I knew that Farhadi was a filmmaker I was going to love and want to have a more in-depth viewer relationship with when I was watching A Separation and it kind of, I realised that the whole film was like an argument about a word and, you know, I'm a, I'm a poet and just, it's not just the attention to the construction of the narrative of the screenplay, but the fact that he manages to have this incredible sort of thriller forward motion where you're constantly evaluating character motivation and behaviour with this I, you know, I I don't speak Farsi and I've never sat through a film wishing as much that I spoke Farsi because I wanted the the <laughs> textures and I was sure that there was a play around different demotics, class demotics and levels of language and language from different places. And the whole, the way that the whole film turns on the, these arguments about definitions of words, which is both very appropriate to the fact that separation is about divorce and it's about meetings with lawyers and definitions and legal cases, but also tells you so much about Payman's character. I just, something about that, as you say, is um, not very often encountered anywhere in cinema. And it was really fascinating to read in your book. My brain sort of went, oh, tick, that he wrote his thesis on Harold Pinter, the, the playwright. Yes. Yeah, you're totally right. And, and it, it comes down in a separation. You see that trickle down effect of how words affect meaning. Um, it's coded quite almost explicitly in like the way that the daughter is like, you know, reciting things that she's going to have on a test. Mm -hmm. And the father's like, no, 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 you should use this word instead. It's the true Persian mm -hmm. word, you know, mm -hmm. um, there, there's a lot of that as well. And and yeah, like it is it is a movie that is directly about language and the way that affects the way that you present your own case, whether it's in front of a judge or in front of a loved one even, right? And it's funny because I think that honestly, in terms of Western influences, Harold Pinter might be the closest influence that I can see in his work. He had an interesting thing to say, which was, was, which was in the interview section um, about how he could really identify with Harold Pinter's work because people were basically saying anything but the actual thing that they wanted to say to each mm -hmm. other. And that's mm -hmm. very true if, if you're familiar with Pinter's work. And I was like, that's so true of Iranian society. And he's like, yes, I sense that as well. Like that we're always sort of coming up with these flowery things to say in order to avoid talking about what we actually want to talk about. And it's all a lie. It's, it's a deception. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so yeah, and, and and it's it's just interesting to me because I've also been a huge fan of Harold Pinter in my own right, and I'm like, is that why I like it? Maybe I like it because <laughs> Harold Pinter's so great. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm very aware of that the the sort of subtext in, in like just everyday conversation, and I yeah, Iranian culture is really funny that way, um, and it's and it's interesting talking to people. So seeing someone actually make movies that have a lot of that and are like it's explicitly about that is just for me it's like almost daring you know what mm -hmm. i mean like it's not like he's calling out the culture he's just sort of more like this is the way it is well i i did want to ask you about that because it's the thing i've been wondering for years and you know please forgive any naivety i'm i'm displaying in this question his films do seem quite critical of iranian society are uh, they are complex they don't sugarcoat the you know, oppressive, difficult aspects of the society. And I wondered why he is, or he appears from the outside to be free to make films when his contemporary Jafar Panahi is not. Mm -hmm. 
I think that the the key in understanding why Farhadi has this um, freedom, if if you will, and it's a freedom that I think is fraught with a lot of tension for sure. Like I don't definitely don't want to make it sound like Farhadi can just write write whatever script he wants and then you know uh, the Iranian authorities are like go right ahead, right? <laughs> it's nothing like that at all. He's under a, a lot of you know in terms of like supervising the way that the script works and all that kind of stuff. He's under the exact same kind of control um, and surveillance in a sense. However, the key to understanding why his movies work the way that they do and are allowed is understanding that he has no bad characters in his movies. And sometimes the way that you watch the film, how you interpret the film says more about you than what it says about the movie itself. So... To use a separation as an example, which was uh, an example that I like to use a lot uh, when I was trying to explain this idea, is that we look at Samin as someone who wants to leave Iran because she wants the best future for her daughter. And I think as Westerners, we get that. We go, oh, yes, you know, Iran, obviously, it's oppressive towards women, blah, 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 blah. And it's easy within the first few minutes of the, the film to get her uh, to understand her frustration of wanting to leave and not being able to do so as a result of, uh, you know, her husband's uh, father um, having Alzheimer's. But I think that an Iranian censor or, or an Iranian conservative watching the film easily identifies with the servant, the very religious servant, Razia, and sees in Razia certain characteristics that are altruistic, She's a good character. Um, they might look at, for example, Simin's want to leave the country as being, you know, silly or like she wants to flee and go to the indulgent West or, you know, whatever. But my point is just that no matter what your ideological stance is, you can enter a Farhadi film and find characters and identify with any and all of them. I'm not saying that, you know we can't identify with Razia. Of course we can, and of course we do. But the point is that he equalizes it for everyone. And I think that he makes it harder for people to really understand what he's trying to say. So it's kind of like a Rorschach test where like what you're, what you're seeing is really more, has really more to do with, with you. Now, in my opinion, I think that he is for a lot of the the critiques that I see in his movies. I think that he is really like subtly, very, very subtly codifying them in such a way to provide a social critique. But I can also understand how someone might not get that, you know, and might let that go through the process for a film to be, um, you know, permitted and allowed to be shot and allowed to be screened and so on and so forth. So that's that's my personal take on this issue. I think with someone like Panahi, and I love I love the films of Panahi. Before I started writing this book, actually, my original idea was to write a, a book on Jafar Panahi's films because uh, I think at the time um, I couldn't find a single book that was written just on his work. But the fact that he was under the house arrest and all that made it kind of complicated for me to you know, try to interview him and stuff. So I decided to go with Farhadi instead. And and so Panahi's films are much more direct, 
You know, the critique is is right there. And that doesn't necessarily make them better or worse. I'm just saying that as far as I think the Iranian government looking at these movies in terms of what's allowed, you know, what's what's rubbing them the wrong way versus what's more permissible. I can see how Farhadi's films would be a lot more easily just allowable, if that makes sense. I wonder if there's also something about the fact that in many of his films, so I'm particularly, I'm thinking about Fireworks Wednesday and The Salesman, but also in a way um, about Ellie, the, in a sense, the main event has taken place off screen um, and is this is subject of quite a lot of uncertainty and doubt. So the identity of the former owner, the tenant of the property in, in The Salesman, for example, Ellie's um, status as a fiancé and also what's happened to her in about uh, Ellie mm-hmm. and the relationship in Fireworks Wednesday, the affair that uh, Morteza is having or isn't having with the next door neighbour. They all... Mm-hmm. All of those actions mainly take place off screen or are only revealed very late towards the end of the film, by which point, as you say, you've already invested in one character or another or in some position between them. So it's very hard to pin down and say, well, this is what this event means or this is what it's depicting, because it's all just evoked through this elliptical dialogue and these often very contradictory references. I love the way that very often in films he'll get children to tell the story of what happened Mm -hmm. and we know that Mm. while children have an amazing clarity they're also easily persuaded they're unreliable witnesses so the amazing scene in about ellie where they're trying to pin down the story of what happened to ellie when did she go into the water before or after you were you came to see us when we were playing volleyball and with each line the kids are saying something different as their sense of time and their sense of the importance of the story changes so Mm -hmm. there's something about this kind of i don't know like uncertainty principle that as well as giving it this kind of murky ethical quality is also like as a censor it would be really hard to pin down and say oh you can't say that you can't show that because everything is so so uncertain yeah it's it's totally removed um and it's just either hinted at or as you said like eventually revealed only later on there was uh, about ellie was was actually my first faradi film and it was one I wandered into quite by accident at a film festival, and I just want to take a moment to speak up for film festivals and the sense of border shattering they promote because, you know, we, at least over here, we hear very little about Iran in the media. Uh, you know, it's, it's short, reductive statements about its leadership, its news about international diplomacy, and we're led to view the country as possibly more impressive than it actually is, and I'm, you know, nervous confessing this because it possibly speaks to my own ignorance, but one of the many things that affected me about uh, this film was it, was it wasn't just showing people going on holiday and playing games and so on, but it was the openness of it. It was the, the naturalism. Um, and re-watching it without the filter of that revelation that still works, you know, I, I think it's a perfect film with complex moral quandaries and emotions played like a mystery. And there's an addictive rewatchability to this film in particular that most dramas don't have. And I think it speaks to what uh, you were talking about just then, Sophie, about, you know, he plays emotional journeys like detective stories. You know, I see mm-hmm. most of his films like mysteries. And, you know, I watched this film a few days ago and I would happily watch it again tonight, which is a very rare quality for intense dramas like this to possess. And I think it's, it's you know, it's down to that construction, the, the sort of genre he's dipping his toe into. Yeah, I think that the um, 
the pacing of his films, for me anyway, for me personally, as a film critic and someone who has been asked to rank my favorite Farhadi films, which is like, okay, like, I don't, I don't <laughs> like ranking children. movies, but yeah, yeah, there's that too. But it's like, I just, in general, I, I hate, I hate that aspect of, of cinephilia and, and film criticism. But what I'm trying to think of what I like and what works for me and what doesn't, pacing is hugely important in his movies. And I, for me, about Ellie and The Separation, I think are the best examples of that. Like there's something about the way that they're constructed, the order in which they're constructed and just literally the pace, the editing, the, the, the forward like motion, um, the intensity, the, the tension building, all that, all that, like all those aspects of uh, a detective story uh, just work in a way that in some of his other films, either it's irrelevant or it doesn't work as well. Before we move into this subject, though, of of the way that his narratives are constructed, I did want to say one more thing about the censors and uh, or about conservatives watching Farhadi films. The critiques that Farhadi is making in most of his movies from Fireworks Wednesday onward, I would say, really have to do with the middle class and there is a resentment between people who are not from the city, who are uh, of lower socioeconomic status, who are traditionally more religious. And I, I don't want to pit one group of people against another, but I do think that, you know, either a person belongs into one of those categories or as, you know, as many as all of those categories, they look to the middle to upper class with a certain degree of resentment and, and, you know, they, they look to them as like, oh, well, they're inferior for X, Y, and Z reason. One of those reasons is they might be more secular or they might be just looking down on anyone who's below them. And his films do show that. And I think quite a few of his films quite, you know, directly comment on, on how this is. And you see it in the relationships, especially with servants and clients how this comes to be. There's a self-centeredness to some of the characters. I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the, the wife in Fireworks Wednesday, who basically uses the servant as like her spy, yeah. right? And that's just one of several examples. And so I think, again, like if you are a conservative religious person looking at these characters, it's easy to see why they might identify with and really enjoy Farhadi's films. Because some of the critiques that he's making is really a, a, about his own class of society. So there, there's that as well. And I think a shout out, and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, should go there also to Tarana Alidusti, mm -hmm. who has played several of those roles. Yes. for Farhadi and it has also boycotted the Oscars over the nomination of The Salesman which is one reason although not the only reason that we are talking about this extraordinary filmmaker this month but the fact that he has built this group of performers and also I think we should mention his editor Hayade Safiari who mm -hmm is maybe responsible for some of that pacing or co-developing some of that pacing um, and actors that he's worked with repeatedly so that when you see them on screen reconfigured around these roles, you have this incredible sense of familiarity as if the films together were producing a kind of serial drama or not a sitcom, but 
a sit melodrama i don't know we'll have to invent a term that Mm -hmm. drops you into these this interconnected society where you are seeing facets of this story play out again and again and you feel like they could fit together and certainly like re-watching them and watching um the earlier films which i hadn't seen before particularly fireworks wednesday that feels like the beginning of this flight or passage they do really inform each other in this tight sense as if they were a an interlinked series of novels or something Mm. Mm. yeah i thought the same thing and i don't know if that's just the casting or i don't know enough about the neighborhoods in tehran to point my finger and say yeah (laughs) well i i also think that part of that is uh you know with farhadi having a theater background and I and I I like to think I don't know enough about um, Tehran's like acting community, but I like to think that these people all sort of know each other uh, mm-hmm. because they they do show up in each other's films. So to me, it's highly plausible that it's just really more of a community. Uh, and and Farhadi has become one of the the more successful people to to create that sort of roster of uh, collaborators. There's there's that. I mean, if you look at, for example, um, like Manny Hariri, who uh, is an actor in About Ellie, actually helped write Fireworks Wednesday, which was the movie that came before. A lot of these people, like, they do multiple things. They, they don't just act. They might also write. They might also um, direct. And I completely agree about, uh, like, Tarana Ali Dusty is my favorite Iranian actress right now. She's phenomenal. Uh, I, I Like, when I first saw her in Fireworks Wednesday... I was like, this is this is like one of my favorite performances of all time because yeah. just with like like it's like in a nanosecond her her facial expression just completely changes and she wears so much of her emotions on her face because her character is just this extremely young naive woman who's just been like recently engaged and is so excited. And it's like through the course of the day, she's just getting this like very important lesson in how relationships and marriage can actually work. And you just see it all on her face, you know, and and she keeps up a very optimistic front. But you can you can even see at the very end when she's reunited with her fiance, like something has changed Mm -hmm. in her expression, even though she's smiling. She's not quite smiling the same way as at the beginning of the movie. Like, I yeah. I, I love Ali Ducey so much. I think she's a phenomenal actress and um, I hope that she works with uh, Farhadi more. I was just going to say, I wonder if that theatre background in that sense that you can move between roles is part of what produces these incredibly honest and free performances. So I'm thinking about things like the the dance party in About <laughs> Ellie when the men just start dancing on the sofa. And one of the things I really loved rewatching this, these films together was seeing the range of masculinities that's on offer in them, which is unusual, I think, in, in a lot of cinemas globally, just to have <laughs> a you know, men acting together in this range and then across the different films, seeing all these different registers and ranges uh, of masculinity and obviously Beautiful City, I think, offering and Dancing dancing in the Dusk, a, a very particular version of that to do with more working class characters and more enthralled to sort of more violent tropes of masculinity in cinema and then changing as it it moves forward but there's a sort of incredible physical freedom in the performances and I wonder if that was part of what surprised western audiences about it with about Ellie not just the story but the kind of 
grace and expressiveness uh, of the performances, which are very different from the sort of guardedness in Jafar Panahi's films, um, and maybe comes from that theatrical experience. I, I would I would say so. And I think that uh, if you look at the way, and I don't know if, I doubt that he's done this for every single one of his movies, but I know he's talked about his rehearsal process for a separation and how it was really more that, you know, the, the they rehearsed for like something like a month or something like that, like weeks wow. upon weeks. Like it was more of a, like, th- it felt more like a theatrical production that they were putting on than a than an actual movie that they were, you know, f- shooting. But what Farhadi did, because I, I especially feel that freshness in the performances in A Separation, what he did to prevent the lines from becoming rehearsed is he didn't really let the actors see the script until they were shooting them. So for most of that rehearsal period, it wasn't so much a rehearsal as it was just character development. So he wrote alternate scenes and played certain character development games and exercises with the characters or with the actors so that they could really become entrenched in those roles and really like feel like they were you know living inside of those characters and then he brings out the script and he would plant little surprises during the shooting just to keep them on their toes which is I can see the relevance of that in a in a theater production but I mean on camera it's even more just blown up do you know what I mean like someone someone like being surprised or like caught off guard as they're being shot you can't replicate that quite the same way as you can with a camera you know what I mean because it it just captures every single tiny like change in someone's facial expression and I really do think that that comes from Farhadi's back background in theater. Uh, We haven't mentioned this yet, but he did go to university for theater where he studied writing, actually, of all things, not directing. And it wasn't like a general theater uh, degree. It was, you know, for the first couple of years, you, you just do some like more general theater classes and then you sort of pick, uh, pick a specialty and his was writing. From there on, he uh, wrote scripts for radio. So radio dramas, television series, uh, and and eventually moved his way into cinema. But what I think is fascinating is that he wasn't really interested in theater. Since he was a child, essentially, he's always been a cinephile and has always wanted to make movies. And his decision to go into uh, university for theater was a decision that was basically put upon him by the school administration saying, no, actually, we're in, you know, instead of studying cinema, we're going to put you in the theater program. Uh, And he was absolutely, he was absolutely devastated (laughs) when he found this out. But he actually learned over time that it was very beneficial for his own storytelling. It's also exactly the kind of backstory that you would expect a character in a Fahadi film to have. (laughs) (laughs) Betrayed by their school administrator. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that that, um, uh, what you were talking about there, and what you were talking about earlier about the writer Fahadi versus the director Fahadi, because I think one of the things that impresses me so much is that his films, like going back to the, the idea of them being detective stories, it's so important, the order in which things happen and who says what to whom and at which point and who's in the room and there's so many moving parts like a separation hinges on a diversion it's like a subplot has taken over and it becomes the main plot yet it feels on point and it's it's so specific the minutiae how could i have done this when the door opens at this point and it's three inches to the left and and we get drawn in to these uh, these specificities because it's all about the very human 
reactions that people have to, you know, really everything in their lives. That's him as a writer. And then you've got him as the director having these incredibly improvised scenes, like in About Ellie, the charades games mm. were all improvised. So they're actually guessing, and you've got the kids doing these incredibly cute charades games. And, and you can see on the faces of the adult, they're really trying to figure out what's going on. So you get this naturalism and this complexity and it all just, yeah, it, it really impresses me. It's so it's such a difficult balance and a difficult trick to pull off, really. I have a question, which is, if that's your way of working, how do you then make it work when you're work you're outside your the language that you speak? So how did he make it work shooting Le Passé in France? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I mean, I asked him about this a fair bit, and he was like, he I, I felt like he didn't quite open up to me as much as he could have. Maybe I wasn't asking the right way or something I don't know but he just made it as easy as oh yeah we just you know had translators and it was all very simple and I was just like <laughs> okay but I mean for you know you you were mentioning uh, earlier Sophie about how you know a separation like in terms of language is so important and clearly Farhadi is a master of words he's very very honed in on the way that language is used so that's incredibly important when you're making a movie outside of your homeland in a country in a in a language that you don't really speak this is what he told me in iran making movies is pretty cheap compared to making a movie in say france and he told me that when he made the past you know his budget basically like quadrupled and so most of it was excessive and he didn't really feel that it was necessary and you know, the way that he described it was that, you know, in Iran, someone who's doing uh, this production, this very particular production job or task is also going to take care of X, Y, and Z. Whereas in France, it's all very like unionized and people have their job descriptions and that's it. And so for every person in Iran, there's like 10 people in France doing the same kind of work, right? And so he said, it's a very different way of working, but I think that must have helped him in some degree. Like I, I'm, I'd like to think that it took some strain off of him in terms of just getting certain things done because he wouldn't have been able to work with quite the same tight-knit crew that he that he does in Iran but I really don't know I'm still kind of perplexed by the past and (laughs) and how he really made it I like to think that the story revolving around an Iranian man and the fact that Farhadi himself lived in France as he was writing it. So he was sort of like immersed in the world in which he was setting all of his characters. Played a significant role in the uh, shaping of that story. And his own familiarity with just the way that he was going to eventually make this movie. But that seems like a really generic thing to say, quite frankly, like generic uh, hypothesis. I don't have, I I honestly don't have any answers. It's, yeah. (laughs) Maybe you guys have better theories than I do. (laughs) Not at all. No, it's something I'm really curious about. I'm not a huge fan of the past. I've come around to it a lot more in uh, Southwick years, but the first time I watched it, I I was actually really upset. But... This tends to happen, I think, anytime 
you know, because the only film I think I'd seen, I think I'd seen a few films um, by the time I'd seen uh, The Past. So I'd seen A Separation and I'd seen About Ellie. And I just went in with like the highest of expectations and they weren't quite met. So, you know, there's there's an understandable like disappointment that sets in. Well, if people want to learn more, uh, we're going to have a link to your book on in our show notes. So go to our website, check out the show notes and you can buy Tina's book on Asghar Fahadi. And am I right in thinking that you're donating some of the profits from this to the ACLU, Tina? Yes. So basically, uh, it's been going on for, I guess, almost a month now. But from now until uh, February 26th, um, the the donations will be made um, to the ACLU. Um, Assuming this comes out after, if you were set on buying the book and you wanted the, the profits to also go to the ACLU, you can email the critical press. Um, you should be able to find their contact information on the website and be able to specify that you'd like that. And, and my publisher, Tom Elrod, can, will be more than happy to set it up that way. So, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Everyone get on that. <laughs> Tina, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Lee and Sophie, for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, I hope everyone who listens to this uh, checks out more of Asghar Farhadi's works. Definitely. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Khodafez. of the salesman is a bold assertion of London's unique and remarkable culture, as is the presence of all of you here today. Our On the 26th of February 2017, about five days after we recorded the podcast and mere hours before the Oscar ceremony in which The Salesman won Best Foreign Language Film, the City of London held a special outdoor screening of The Salesman in Trafalgar Square. An estimated 10,000 people attended the event that was part of the ongoing London is Open project, including Sophie, who recorded key moments from the speeches that preceded the screening. You'll hear from journalist and TV presenter Mariella Frostrup, model and actress Lily Cole, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, filmmaker Mike Lee, and finally, in a pre-recorded message, the man himself, Asghar Fahadi. To see photos from the Trafalgar Square event, please check out the show notes for this episode at the hellisforhyphenates.com blog. Thank you so much. Poor Mr. Fahadi, I think he's going to be very sad to have missed this event tonight, not the one in Hollywood. Obviously a travesty that Mr. Fahadi can't attend the 89th Academy Awards in the US later this evening, where his film, The Salesman, is nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Here in London, I think I speak on behalf of everyone present here when I say we're so proud to be honouring him by hosting the UK public premiere of his film right here in the centre of London, in London's iconic Trafalgar Square. Brilliant audience. Um, so, by, before introducing our first speaker, I just want to pay tribute to our mayor, Sadiq Khan, for organising this screening, which is, again, yeah, in the centre of our city, shining a spotlight on how, post-Brexit, London is determined
determined to remain a beacon of inclusiveness and an international hub of creativity. I'm proud to be a resident of a city that can conjure up a crowd like this. A crowd comprised of all faiths, nationalities and backgrounds. This is the London I know and love, and I think the London you all know and love as well. A London that's not only defined and enriched by our diversity, but which actively celebrates and cherishes it. So I want to thank our mayor and all the organisers who've helped put together this stage event today. And it's my great pleasure at this point to introduce you to the actress, model and activist and very tall and beautiful person, Lily Cole. <laughs> Welcome Lily. Come on, the same floor. so many people. Um, when we first went up this event, um, a couple of friends of mine and I got brought in quite early. The idea was to do a protest in front of the US Embassy. And I have to say, the fact that we, instead of having a massive celebration in Trafalgar Square is wonderful. Um, I, yeah, I'd like some more of those. I grew up in this city and I went to a school that had more Muslims than it had Christians. I count one of my best first friends who's here today as a Muslim and I think that this city has taught me more than anything that diversity and unity is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so Dear Connor is just coming to the stage now. President Trump can't silence me. <laughs> My name is Sadiq Khan and I am the Mayor of London. As I look around Trafalgar Square, I am the Mayor of London. And you should be proud too, because in Trafalgar Square today, we have men and women we have old and young. We have rich and poor. We have people here who are Christians, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists, members who are organized of faith and members who are of no organized faith. We have people from all around the world. And the key message we send to the world is London is open. You know, we are a city open to talent. We are a city open to creativity and we are a city open to people. Whether you're from Iran or Iraq. Whether you're from Streatham or Shoreditch. Whether you're from Lebanon or London, you are welcome. We are the greatest city in the world. And you know, I want the world to hear, we stand 
in solidarity with Azhar Fahadi. We stand in solidarity with all those who are discriminated against because of their nationality, their faith, or their background. And you know, the great thing about this city is we don't simply tolerate difference. We respect it, we celebrate it, and we embrace it. And those, those are the foundations upon which the success of our city was built. And we must never forget that. But you know, we're here today to watch a film. We're here today to watch a film nominated for an Oscar. We're here today to watch a film directed by one of the world's greatest directors. And it's only right and proper that it's in the iconic Trafalgar Square. And you know, in addition to watching this film afterwards, and this should be a source of pride, we have the orchestra of Syrian musicians. And they'll be joined by the former Blur frontman, David Alden's going to be here. Showing the world London is open to talent, to creativity, and to people. So look, have a really good afternoon. Enjoy the film. Enjoy the music. Enjoy each other's company. And look, remember this. At a time when people are talking about travel bans, we should welcome people. At a time when people are talking about building walls, we build bridges. Have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. Mike Lee's just coming up to the mic. Good afternoon. Today's screening is important for three reasons. As again, it's already been said. Demonstrates London's indestructible strength as a beacon of tolerance, respect, and diversity. To be a member is a magical thing. And you don't have to have been born Arrive in London from near or far, and you will find yourself a member of the family before you can think. Today, the Oscars are happening in Hollywood. Today's film is nominated in the foreign language category. And one of the masters of world cinema is its director and writer, Asghar Fahadi. Iranian filmmakers since the revolution have been impressively inventive and resourceful in succeeding to make truthful films despite heavy official censorship. The past master was the late Abbas Kirastami. Abbas Kirastami, who sadly died prematurely late last year. Asghar Fahadi is now not only the greatest Iranian filmmaker, but for those of us who make films about real people in this year, he is our master.
As you will shortly see, he combines compelling storytelling with stunning realism. In 2012, I had the privilege of being the president of the jury at the Berlinale, the Berlin Film and Asuka was on the jury with him. A short, serious fellow with a twinkle in his eye and a great sense of humour, he has worked in theatre, television and film. Today's film, won both the best screenplay and best actress last year, and among Asghar's scores of other awards are his Oscar and his Golden Globe for a separation, which I consider. Do you agree with what I'm going to say next? I was going to say what I consider to be one of the greatest films of all time. And here he is, my great friend, the sublimely talented film director, Asko Harvey, who I know wishes he could have been here today. Honorable Mayor Sadat Khan, fellow members of the cinematic community and dear people of London who have gathered on this cold afternoon to watch a salesman, I send you my warm greetings from Tehran. I am extremely happy that the scattered reactions from people and art communities across the globe shown to the oppressive travel ban of immigrants has developed into a powerful and unified movement. This solidarity is off to a great start. I hope this movement will continue and spread for it has within itself the power to stand up to fascism, be victorious in the face of extremism, and say no to oppressive political powers everywhere. Despite our different religions, cultures, and nationalities, we are all citizens of the world, and I will try to protect and spread this unity. I'm proud to be a member of this global family and believe in the strength and power of its movement. I'm sorry I can't be there with you in person, however, know that I'm there in spirit, and thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I hope you enjoyed the film tonight. Thank you. Yeah.